0: You know how they had the Oscars last night? I'm going to stop you right there and say I don't watch awards shows. I think they're hierarchical. I think they're the antithesis of what art and creativity exist for. Okay, but... No, 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 Let me finish. It almost sickens me when individual artists of any kind are placed in the equivalent of a gladiator's ring and forced to scrabble in the dust for some gaudy, gleaming trophy. The thing is, you just won the Golden Llama Prize. I did? I won the Golden Llama Prize? Who else was up in my category? Brooke Gladstone, Rachel Martin, and Ophira Eisenberg. I crushed them, that was so awesome. How you like me now, Brooke and Rachel and Ophira? Who's got it going on, baby? Uh. Do you know anything about the Golden Llama Prize? No, but who cares, I won. It's part of the Animals' Choice Awards where animals vote for their favorite celebrities. I'm sorry, uh, only animals vote? Yes. Okay, that makes no sense. But then animals are so honest and direct. It's actually better if animals pick you. And I'll totally make sure the the fabulous dress that I wear to the awards show will not be made out of any of them. At least not the ones who voted for me. I mean, the animals who voted for Ophira would make a really great stole or like a wrap. You could maybe consider standing on your anti-competition principles. Let me give that some careful thought. Okay, no, I'm accepting the award. Do you think 17 minutes is too long for an acceptance speech? Don't answer that. Today on The Scramble, Steve Allman questions award shows, Noah Gordon tries to speed up baseball, and Winter Kaplinson discusses the fate of the Coventry Farmer's Market. And now the umpire just warned him to stop having conferences on the mound with invisible people. Colin McEnroe. That's
1: one of the new rules in Major League Baseball this year. If you're going to have a conference on the mound, there actually has to be somebody else with you that other people can see, which I think is reasonable. Uh, we're going to try to be super reasonable on the show today. I have to tell you before we get going, I had this bad thing happen this weekend, uh, which I've been whining about for the last 24 hours, which is I had a pipe burst. I never had a pipe burst before. It's like the worst thing ever. It's right up there with ice dams. Ice dams are so bad that people actually go up on their roofs with like chainsaws and and. You know, uh, torches and things like that, uh, acetylene torches, because this atavistic you know, weird impulse kind of wells up in them. They have to deal with this right away. They have water pouring into their houses. And so they set their houses on fire or saw holes in their roofs. And having a pipe burst is almost as bad. So the reason I'm telling you this is that I really need CNG to come to my house today. And so if my phone rings during the show, I may just answer it, you know, because I just, I can't afford to lose the CNG guy. It's one of those deals where they just say, you know, you got to be ready when we're ready. All right. I might just leave, too. I might just walk off the show. I have to go deal with my furnace. All right. So we're going to talk a little bit later about how to speed up baseball or maybe how not to, maybe why not to. Uh, and we're also going to talk about the um, Coventry Regional Farmers Market, uh, an event or a thing, a weekly thing, really, in the summer that I, and, and also in the winter that I love. I love this thing. And it's, as most of you know, quite endangered right now. But maybe maybe not finally, totally uh, fatally endangered. But first we're going to talk to Steve Almond, one of our favorite guests, the author of uh, many books, including God Bless America, and most, recent, most recently, Against Football, a Reluctant Manifesto. And it turns out that this is just a poison spreading through Steve Allman's arteries. Like, not only does he now have issues about football, but now it's all other kinds of competition. Uh, and so he's uh, written a piece in Salon, the name of which I cannot entirely say on the air. We are all something, something now. The Oscars and award ceremonies pervert and devalue art. This appeared uh, yesterday in Salon.com. Not that the Internet really knows time as we know time. So, Steve Allman, welcome back to our airwaves.
2: (laughs) Thank you for that auspicious introduction.
1: And what has happened to you? You were given a good American upbringing. You were taught the uh, importance of competition, zero-sum games, crushing your opponent, all those things. I don't think your parents spared any uh, time or expense to acquaint you with these ideas. And look what you've turned into. I know.
2: I would like to thank the Academy for my bitterness.
1: So, so you're. Uh, well, actually, before. Not that you can't make your speech, ju- your case just fine. But uh, let's have uh, the distinguished thespian Dustin Hoffman when accepting his Academy Award for Kramer versus Kramer for Best Actor on Kramer versus Kramer. Um, here's what he says: almost a summation of the Steve Almond argument.
3: I refuse to believe that I beat Jack Lemmon, that I beat Al Pacino, that I beat Peter Sellers. I refuse to believe that Robert Duval lost. We are a part of an artistic family. There are 60,000 actors in this Academy, pardon me, in the Screen Actors Guild, and probably 100,000 in equity. And most actors don't work, and a few of us are so lucky to have a chance to work with writing and to work with directing. Because when you're a broke actor, You can't write. You can't paint. You have to practice accents while you're driving a taxi cab. And to that artistic family that strives for excellence, none of you have ever lost. And I am proud to share this with you, and I thank you.
1: So that in large part is the argument you're making, too, that when you set up something like the Oscars, what you're saying is that out of a group of artists, any kind of artists, actors, directors, uh, music composers, that there's going to be one winner and four losers. And that doesn't make any sense in terms of what you understand about creativity.
2: Yeah. And I really um, I mean, I'm extrapolating. I think the, the Oscars, I mean, it's entertainment. So that's sort of what America does now. That's our central export. And it's our central business is entertainment. And so, yes. The Oscars are cracking good entertainment, no argument there. But I think what I was writing about is this idea of the Oscars impulse that in every realm of creativity, what we have done uh, is make it into a competition. And for me as a writer, it's really uh, especially offensive to think about whether the Brothers Karamazov is better than Anna Karenina or these annual awards Um, about which they really essentially take us away from the intended effect of art which is to bring us deeper into ourselves and to make us feel implicated by whatever narrative we've been immersed in and they get us asking very dumb uh, questions about that are really just sort of ego need questions well is this thing better than that thing when in fact the whole point of art is that it inhabits us in a radically subjective way. We collaborate with a piece of art. We bring our own emotional life, our neuroses, our anxieties, our desires to, into the movie theater, When you know, into a song, into a, a novel or a short story, into a play. And it's completely – it isn't just against the spirit of art. It's against the purpose of art to then try to say this film or – this song or this book is better than these other ones. It's completely idiotic.
1: Um, the, one of the uh, occasions for you to think about this uh, was watching the movie All is Lost, which is a 2013 movie. Uh, you were catching up with it, and you found yourself asking as you... Uh, bathed in a certain amount of admiration for this movie, admiration and seawater uh, for this movie (laughs) that, you know, uh, did did Robert Redford win an Oscar as if for a moment, at least in your mind, that was the central question about this work. That was the way you were momentarily, anyway, engaging with this work, asking yourself what you now see as a kind of out of bounds, unimportant question.
2: Well, it's not an unimportant question, I guess, because I was asking it. So something inside of me, the American inside of me, was saying, was he recognized for this remarkable performance where he's the only person on you know, on screen for all 90 minutes, and he's doing almost all the acting without ever speaking? I had a similar experience a few years ago when I saw the movie Becoming Flynn, which is based on the wonderful mm-hmm. Nick Flynn memoir, Another Night in Bull Bla- Bleep City. Uh, and it's not a great film, but uh, uh, Robert De Niro's performance as an aging, narcissistic father who you know, winds up homeless, spirals into homelessness, was so astonishing that I kept leaning over to my wife and saying, are you seeing what De Niro is doing? This is the Bobby De Niro, because I call him Bobby because we're, we're like that. Right. This is the Robert De Niro that I have been waiting to see for 20 years. He's just been jerking around doing these money movies. This is a guy who's really laying it all out there. This is an older Robert De Niro who is utterly ruined and wrecked and at the height of his rage. and This is Taxi Driver De Niro. And I was so fired up about it. And this is going to sound silly, but I have the same reaction when I watch Willy Wonka, the original Willy Wonka with Gene Wilder. There's a part of me, my lizard brain, my American capitalist brain that says, that's an Oscar winning performance. That guy has so fully inhabited that role that he deserves to be recognized. But of course, what's important is that each of those performance performances was deeply affecting to me. And somebody else could see the same films and go, eh, it was okay, you know, I liked Edward Norton and thus and such. It's just that's the nature of art. It's so deeply subjective. And when we ask that question about did it win this or that award, we're not asking the question, why did this piece of art so deeply inhabit me? Why was I so haunted by watching Robert you know, Redford somehow try to survive against all odds and use his human ingenuity to struggle and to try? And I was sort of feeling like that role in particular, he's a human being who's just trying. That's our job on earth, is to try and to struggle. And the great pieces of art capture that. And it's just degrading and depressing to me that we turn almost every occasion for human creativity into some sort of stupid popularity contest where we're asking, well, did it win? Is it the most popular?
1: Well, some of that, I wonder if that, just to push back a little bit, uh, some of that might be hardwired into us. I mean, you even see movies about this, right? In in High Fidelity, they spend the whole movie making various lists of the best things or the worst that's, uh, and I I haven't seen Chris Rock's uh, Top Five, but I understand it's uh, very kind of similar. And I feel like if you go back in time to, you know, savage hominids on the grasslands of Africa sitting around the campfire, they're probably going, Top Five Cave Paintings, or definitely the saber-toothed tiger that's over there. Right you know, and, and, and then guys are arguing about it. And pretty soon somebody gets killed. Um, but, but I mean, we I, the Oscars maybe are just sort of a placeholder for that kind of yardsticky quality that we I mean, we, we sort of do need to figure out what our aesthetic standards are. Right.
2: Well, absolutely. And there's this thing called the critical mission that I feel is absolutely essential that is that somebody seriously engages with the intention of a piece of art is familiar with the historical context in which it appears and is willing to interrogate that as a as a human achievement based on not some set of objective criteria but at least a a, a history and an apprehension of what the artist's intention was and where they succeed and why and where they fail and why that's absolutely essential. Nobody would argue that these award shows or these awards given to books or to film, you know, to plays or, and that's not what that is. That's capitalism. That's who's a winner, who's a loser. What can we gab about around the water cooler? And I do feel that it's, I think there's something about living in a hyper competitive culture where We're constantly having the idea reinforced that what matters isn't the struggle, isn't trying, but who wins and who loses. It's scoreboard, pal. It's bank, pal. That's the mentality, not, boy, Des Bryant tried really hard to catch that pass. How remarkable that he did that. Yeah, but he dropped it and they lost the game, so that's all that history records, and that's all that ultimately matters. I think there's it's, – it's no coincidence that a growing share of our popular culture are dedicated to these absurd contests over who can bake the best cupcake or who can eat the most hot dogs or make the most profit from dr- junk in a storage unit. And political coverage is all about polls and fundraising, the question of who's winning, who's the most popular, and very little of that coverage – and you know this better than I, Colin – is about policy. How might these people govern? What is the morality of their policies? I think that's been disastrous, and that's utterly depressing. But in those realms, I sort of get it. Those are realms that have to do with power, with the need to sort of quench our narcissistic needs. But what about when we're talking about works of art? How in God's name does it make any sense at all to say that Beck is better than Beyonce or Beyonce is better than Beck, when in fact every single listener has a set of ears and a heart that responds to each of those songs in a completely personal, subjective way.
1: But it becomes a medium for talking about art, too. So, and and, we, we, and these are conversations worth having. I mean, in 1995, just for example, uh, as we look back, Forrest Gump was uh, picked as best picture over Pulp Fiction and Quiz Show and Shawshank Redemption. And people look at that and go, well, how could that have ever happened? And, and then there's sort of at least a conversation that goes on. And you're right, uh, Steve Allman. Everybody brings their own set of eyes and their own heart to this. And I'm sure there are lots of, lots of people who would think, well, because Forrest Gump is, is better than those movies, but there's we also have a, our own hardwiring about this. So maybe that conversation is worth having and saying. Well, no, I don't even think Forrest Gump really challenged us the way you know the way Pulp Fiction did or didn't. You know, fracture the medium or uh, you know. And, and these are conversations that people might not have, but for the verbal fulcrum of, of an award show,
2: I guess. Except that I don't honestly believe that those conversations are about the personal effects of those pieces of art If I said to you, Colin, let's decide what the greatest painting of all time is. I think it's Starry, Starry Night by Van Gogh. Oh, you think it's the 3rd of May, 1808 by Goya? Okay. Or you think it's the Mona Lisa? Are we going to deeply delve into what each of those artists is doing and the particular aesthetic effects of their brushstrokes and their coloring and their composition? Or are we just going to have a kind of surface level argument about, well, I like it better because it's prettier and you're dumb because Goya is depressing. And I mean, that's the level of the conversation that we wind up having about films and books. It's ultimately reducing a very deep, complicated personal relationship with a piece of art to something that is much more a kind of, this is what I like, and therefore I want it to be recognized by some aggregate of opinion. I I mean, I'm not... I'm not saying that people don't sometimes have interesting conversations around award shows, but go ahead and look on the Internet. You do not see a deep – because any deep, responsible discussion about a film or a piece of music or a book would ultimately become much deeper than – and would render completely idiotic the question of whether one thing is better than another – Because it would get to the point of, well, how did it personally resonate with me? Why was I so moved by Robert Redford's performances? What moments, what images did that filmmaker create to really get deep inside my fears and anxieties about my own mortality, my capacity to struggle in life? That's a personal discussion, and I don't think that happens when we're talking about award shows. I think award shows is what capitalism does to our souls. It sort of flattens us out and gets us talking about what's more popular or what we like better in a woefully superficial way that takes us away from ourselves.
1: Well, it's hard to argue against that. Uh, The only way that I would, and uh, certainly the critics, film critics feel that way, and then they they themselves, because it's just part of their job, get drawn into exactly these kinds of hierarchical conversations. But then they have to explain why. And I guess the only defense I could really muster about uh, against you would be, and only for the purpose of, of wetting the clean, the keen blade of your own intellect against my <laughs> blunt stone, um, would be to say, I, you know, people would probably have stupid conversations no matter what. If there were no award serum uh, shows, people sitting in bars having had too much to drink, would get into, you know, really stupid conversations about whether Pulp Fiction is better than Guardians of the Galaxy or whether you know, uh, maybe they'd have the conversation about the paintings, too. I'd actually kind of enjoy listening in on that conversation, but um, but, but that, you know, that these award shows do provide occasions also for smarter conversations. I mean, this year, I happened to think that the Grand Budapest Hotel really was the best movie that I saw, at least for me, for my own, you know, set of aesthetic standards, and so I got in a lot of conversations with people where I had to explain why I thought that was true, yeah. you know, what I saw in that movie, and, and I I, I don't know. I, I thought that was more interesting to talk about than a lot of other things I could have been talking about.
2: Yeah. And I would agree that probably you're the sort of um, uh, not provocateur, but you, you have the sort of mind and passion where I would love to sit. And, you know, I saw that film. It's one of the few films I saw with all these little kids running around. I barely get to see any of the movies anymore. And I thought, oh, well, it's kind of pretty, but it's sort of dopey. I would love to hear you. Tell me why it is an important piece of art, what it's saying, etc. I would love to have that conversation. But ultimately, if that conversation were really compelling at all, it would very quickly stop being about whether it should win some award, and would be why why Grand Budapest Hotel resonated so deeply within Colin Mara- Colin McEnroe's twisted psyche.
1: <laughs> yeah, but I, I guess I mean, you look, you're you're absolutely right. And when when Hoffman said those words, that might have been the greatest. Uh, Oscar acceptance speech. It had a lot of other things in it. It might have been the greatest Oscar acceptance speech that anybody (laughs) ever gave. And when he said that thing, you know, about it's ridiculous to say that. Robert Duvall lost to me. You know, I refuse to accept that. I, I it was the first time I'd, I'd ever heard anybody express that, and, and it was absolutely true. And one thing that I do notice when I watch the Oscars is I'm especially appreciative of the more collegial acceptance speeches. That the people who get their award and say, "Oh, by the way, Julia, Amy, Merrill, you guys were all great. I saw your movies." I, right. I, you know, and and some people do it, and some people don't. I noticed this year for some re- reason the animators, the animated, the, they they were the ones who took the most notice to, uh, of each other. Maybe it's easier to honor other people when they're not human, you know, they're <laughs> when they're actually, you know, drawn or something. But, um, you know, I do I appreciate that sense of collegiality anyway. Uh, and so I, I do, I think you're on to something, although I think I'll continue to be an awards junkie, just as I will continue to watch NFL football, even though you have made the absolutely clear-cut case that it's morally indefensible.
2: Well, you know, so you're going to hell and enjoy the company. That's what I have to say. They <laughs> probably have a great Oscars party down there. Pal. That's that's the
1: title of your next book. You're going to <laughs> hell. Enjoy the company. You've just you've 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 already written the title of the next Steve Almond book. All right. Listen. Thanks for joining us today. Do you oh, do you have one last rejoinder that you'd like to? Have?
2: No, no, not at all, not at all. Other than you know, I appreciate that, and I'll give you a, a portion of the proceeds from that next book, which
1: I can assure you will be nothing. I want something in the acknowledgments. That's all. It's important to me. And then if yes. you if you give if you get an, if you win the Man Booker Prize which I assume you'll turn down because you're so <laughs> That's right. in <laughs> the Pulitzer and the National Book Award. But let's assume that you got really weak and accepted one of them. I would want to be mentioned mm-hmm. you know, during the thank yous and, on your acceptance. Piece. Of
2: course. But, you know, the, the, the truth here is, as with football, where people say, oh, you wrote this whole book against football. Well, you're an Oakland Raiders fan. Of course you did. Of course I wrote against awards. I will never win one.
1: Mm-hmm. Don't say that. Well, I mean say it. Say it, but when it happens, we'll 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 take the full measure of you at that point, Steve Holman. <laughs> all right. When the man Booker people call up, let's see how let's see how tough you are. All right, thanks for joining us today. As usual, it was a real treat and a pleasure.
2: Absolutely,
0: thanks. and I
3: am thrilled to be your host.
0: Cuz all of it is for moving pictures, shadows and eyes. Like a magic trick done in plain sight.
1: All right. There's a sense in which one segment here bleeds into another. Imagine how long baseball games would be if pitchers uh, you occasionally had to thank everybody who'd help them uh, get through that. And I like to thank my catcher and the pitching coach. And- Uh, We'd have even longer baseball games. Noah Gordon's joining us now. He's an editorial fellow at The Atlantic. There's a perennial conversation uh, that we have about baseball. The games seem to be—well, they don't seem to be. They are measurably getting longer, um, and there are always various ingenious ideas for changing that. I think Jim Boughton on our show one time said that he would ban Velcro. Uh, If there were no Velcro allowed, somehow or other, that would speed up the games because people wouldn't be fooling around with the straps on their batting gloves. But it's not as simple as that. Noah Gordon has looked at that. He's got a piece uh, on The Atlantic right now, uh, and he joins us. Welcome, Noah Gordon. Thanks for having me. Um, So we should first of all say there are going to be new rules this year. Tell us what the new rules are, the ones that are intended to, to speed up the pace.
4: Right, so baseball made several changes designed to speed up the game. There's some smaller ones to the video review system, like allowing managers to challenge from the dugouts rather than walking out onto the field. Um, MLB will also now enforce the rule saying batters must keep one foot in the box at all times unless there's a swing and a miss, a foul tip, a wild pitch, an exception like that. And possibly the biggest change, uh, there'll be a new clock that's going to govern the times between half innings. So it'll be 2 minutes and 25 seconds for local games and 2 minutes 45 for nationally broadcast games. Some pitchers are going to have to speed up their warmed ups
1: so it it seems, I, I you know, when it seems to us that games are long, as we say, you know, you, you say statistics proving that the games are, in fact, getting longer. But I think also, as fans, if we're just sitting there, there are things that we perceive as elongating the game in a way that we don't like, as opposed to other things that are maybe harder to notice. I, I don't really notice how long it is between innings, uh, you know, I, I but I do notice if a batter is backing out of the batting batter's box or, you know, fiddling around with things. So that particular rule, keep one foot in the batter's box, that's meant to eliminate a lot of that fidgety behavior, except in situations where there's been a wild pitch or or something like that where where they're allowed to, right?
4: Right. So to a certain extent, it's something you can't stop. If a guy swings and misses, he's going to want to collect himself and get ready for the next pitch. But what they do want to stop is all the tension rising in a stadium, pitcher getting ready to throw strike three, and a guy steps out to strap up his batting gloves for the third or fourth time. It just slows things down.
1: Um, now, some of these things, some th- these things, and even even more complicated, harder things to deal with, have been tried in other places. And one of the things that you mentioned is, I think it's called the Arizona Fall League, where, in fact, I think they did experiment. I don't know if they were the first to, but they, they did experiment with that keep one foot in the batter's box thing. But but they did even other stuff too, right? They had like a they actually had a pitch clock, a clock between pitches.
4: Right. It's interesting which rules MLB chose not to enforce as well. Um, as you said, the Arizona Fall League uses a pitch clock of 20 seconds, so the are 20 seconds between each pitch, and then the pitch has to be set and ready to throw. College baseball uses a similar thing, and uh, games with a pitch clock were on average 10 to 15 minutes shorter, so that seemed to make a measurable difference in the length of the games. Um, for, and MLB decided not to go this route, which is interesting.
1: Let me first of all ask you, just as a fan, so take off your journalist hat for a second, and just speaking as a fan, do you want games to get faster, and are you prepared to to have significant changes? Uh, in order to make that happen. I mean, for example, another thing I think they do in, in the Arizona Fall League is that intentional walks do not require the requisite for lobbed pitches. Just everybody agrees this is an intentional walk. Trot right down there and take your base. That would be offensive to some purists uh, of the game. Well, as a fan, what's your feeling? Do you, do you really feel like you you need to have the game speed up?
4: Look, baseball is an old game. I think it makes sense for it to change slowly. I wouldn't be opposed to having automatic intentional walks. Um, and I think these current rules, no one's going to complain about fewer commercials between half innings. But to have a pitch clock might seem a little bit intrusive and maybe too much change for a traditional game that's very based on strategy and long discussion.
1: Yeah, so the the pitch clock, I mean, it it does seem like that would be, on the one hand... Uh, a great way to speed up the game, and as you say, when they measure it, it does speed up the game. Uh, there is something kind of contemplative and meditative about baseball, uh, about the relationship between the pitcher and the catcher, the shaking off of signs. You know, there are a lot of things that go on that some people really, I think, maybe even enjoy the build up and the drama. But the other thing that we know, and this has been measured by other stat- baseball statisticians, I can't say it, statisticians, is that I mean, some pitchers, you know, they work so slow, it really is a a significantly different game. There are pitchers who work very crisply, and the announcers are happy, and everybody's happy. And then there are these other guys who their habits are just such that they radically slow down the game. And after a while, you wonder, well, are we kind of indulging and enabling a kind of behavior that really isn't necessary or good for everybody? Why should this guy get to take 26 seconds between pitches?
4: Right, right. I mean, there's a middle ground here. You don't want to stop... uh when pitchers shake off the catcher or walk around the mound, that's part of the action. They need to prepare. But guys who just take forever between pitches, it, it uh, hurts my enjoyment of the game a little bit at least. I'm a Nationals fan, and Jordan Zimmerman is one of the fastest workers in the game. And it's, frankly, a little bit more exciting every time he's on the mound.
1: Um, By the way, as we're going along here, we have Noah for a few more minutes, and this is the kind of thing people tend to have opinions about. So if you do have, you can call in at 860-275-7266, 860 860- Two seven five seven two six six. You may also tweet at us at WNPR Colin. Our tweetmaster Greg Hill is on the job right now at WNPR Colin. So um, you know Noah Gordon. So that the Major League Baseball has, as you say, put in this rule uh, setting a fixed time on how much time can elapse in between uh, innings and it's a little bit longer if it's a nationally broadcast game so they can squeeze the lemon a little bit more for commercials and, and then a little bit different for a local game. But anything that squeeze, that uh, you know deprives the television side of the baseball industry of chances to squeeze the lemon is kind of out of character. I assume that they would do something this radical, this significant, because they're facing uh, another danger on the other side. As you point out in the article, baseball isn't really an any less popular than it used to be, but its fan base is significantly m- m- a bit older than it used to be.
4: Right. So uh, baseball isn't dying by any means. National TV ratings are behind the NFL, but local TV ratings are strong. Attendance numbers have been good. And polls still say that baseball is America's second favorite sport behind the NFL. But at the same time, baseball's audience is getting older. So the median age of World Series viewers was 54 last year, five years ago, it was 50 and kids are declining share of the audience uh kids make up a larger segment of the audience for basketball hockey and even english soccer than they do for baseball
1: um so uh, and it kind of when you think about Youth. I mean, it, I don't know if anybody's ever demonstrated this or measured this. Uh, I mean, one way we could look at it is well, so within that spectrum, within that generational spectrum of people, uh, you know, in, in some of these younger age groups, there probably are people who do enjoy you know, a leisurely pace or don't object to it or something. But so, what's the assumption? Is the assumption that young people are just fundamentally less patient with this stuff? That they they're they're living at some kind of digital clip uh, that's dictated by by video games and and on online interactions, and and therefore, I mean, does anybody really know that young people won't be as happy about longer games?
4: Well, so there isn't data on this, but um, you do hear a lot of worries about how kids today don't have the same attention spans as they used to. I'm not sure how much of that is true, but baseball is a slower game, and it might be better suited for long discussion and analyzing stats than sharing highlights on Vine and Instagram or tweeting a spectacular play. There's no slam dunks, obviously. And maybe baseball feels that speeding things up can help pull some kids back to the game. We'll have to see.
1: Um, what's going to happen as these rules are phased in this year? Because these things are new. Um, do you get any mulligans in this? I mean, if you if it takes you too long to if your ground crews ground crew is out there on the field too long between innings. I mean, do you, uh, is there any latitude being granted?
4: Um, I'm sure there'll be some exceptions like that. There is a phase in period. So yeah. for spring training. In the first month of the season, the rules will be enforced, but there will be no fines. Fines are how they're enforcing this as opposed to calling automatic balls and strikes like they did in the Arizona Fall League. So there will be some time for players to get used to it.
1: Uh, as I say, we're, we're going to be ending this segment pretty, too, pretty soon, but our number is 860 275 I mean, it's worth noting that um, Major League Baseball, although they obviously are somewhat concerned about this, they 're not so concerned that they didn 't institute some changes that made for longer delays and and i mean you you 've alluded to the fact that now the uh, if they 're going to be a challenge. Uh, a call for a video review, the major league manager will do it from the dugout. But but to have any kind of video review to have is, a, a, you know, no matter how you do it, obviously it takes longer if the manager is going to walk out and maybe he's going to walk slower because he knows his own video crew is looking to see whether the challenge is worth making. But um, to have any you know, challengeable, reviewable play is going to make the game longer, right?
4: Yeah, yeah. So they may have cut some time by having managers stay in the dugout, but they actually added an extra challenge. Used to be uh, only able to challenge one play. And now if you're correct, you can keep challenging two plays or even three plays. So uh, some games might actually be longer, and that's just part of the new system.
1: Um I just want to say uh, that there's always one place where there's something worse going on. and I mean, in Japan, in uh, Japanese baseball, they've struggled with the, with the same issues, basically. It's, it's not really all that different, although I think pitchers get in. I've been to Japanese baseball games. My recollection is pitchers get in from the dugout if they're relief pitchers much faster. That changeover, I think, happens much faster. The amount of warm-up time they're given is less. But in Japanese baseball, almost any injury warrants a visit to the dugout and maybe to the clubhouse. So rather than, you know, standing out there having ethyl chloride sprayed on your restaurant, I mean, every injured player just about leaves the field. Yeah, so that'll, that'll keep the game running longer. Um, Noah yeah, Gordon.
4: Maybe let's keep that out of the culture. But.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, we don't want to do that. Uh, so Noah Gordon, great to talk to you. Interesting article. And we'll see how the games go this year.
4: Great. Thanks so much for having me.
1: All right. That's Noah Gordon. Uh, we're going to take a little break. We're going to come back. We're going to tell you the story. You may have heard the story unfolding right now of one of the most popular attractions of eastern Connecticut, or maybe all of Connecticut, the Coventry Regional Farmers Market, which may not have a future. Think it's time for me to change the same grace.
0: Okay, the WNPR grounds crew is out in the field smoothing the dirt while the next guest walks in from the bullpen. This will take about 10 minutes. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Our interns are Julia Pistel and Sydney Lauro. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Jonathan Papelbon. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff adjusting their Velcro straps, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, the author of Killers of the King, The Men Who Dared to Execute Charles I. And now... Back to Colin.
1: Yes, we are talking about Charles I tomorrow. Well, we're the, probably the only show in America that will be talking about Charles I. I will say that Charles Spencer, uh, who is uh, known for many things, including being the brother of Princess Diana, uh, will be joining us here in studio. And there's this whole connection people down in New Haven know about between the regicides, the killers of uh, Charles I, and, um, and New Haven. Uh, And the three judges and, you know, anyway, Uh, this is going to be a fun show. Uh, So we're having a fun show right now, too. I just want to quickly say Peter tweeted to us during the last um, segment. Yes, I watch baseball to watch baseball and not head shaking and standing around. Um, And Susan tweets, a lot of this seems aimed at TV viewers. Baseball live is still really great to watch. All right. So we're moving on here. And really, I have to say, one of my favorite things about living in Connecticut, uh, I kid you not, is the uh, Coventry Regional Farmers Market, uh, as I was saying to uh, my guest in studio here, Winter Kaplinson, the executive director, I almost like the winter one, which is held uh, at a high school in Coventry uh, better than I like the summer one, because just um, during the winter, there are very few places where you can go and get these vegetables that are grown under cover or under special protection by farmers, but you can get fresh, green, wonderful local organic vegetables there, and all kinds of other stuff as well. So, but Everybody loves the summer one, and just huge, huge crowds uh, come out to the Nathan Hale Memorial uh, during the summer, and so all those people were very, very upset to read on social media or elsewhere that, uh, in fact, the future of that market is in question. In fact, the way it was initially announced, uh, it was a say goodbye to the market. Right, Winder?
5: Yeah. The organizing group that started the market 11 years ago is still intact. All the founders are still intact. We've had new board members join us and new board members depart, but we still have that same original group. Um, the good news was they had a lot of time to dedicate to make a fabulous market because they were all early retirees mm. but um, or young retirees but you know here we are 12 years later and the majority of our group now is in their 70s and this winter has just taken a, a really hard toll on them physically they're not in good shape and we waited for uh, most everybody to get out of the hospital <laughs> so we could meet about the future of the market. And we, uh, we did meet a couple of weeks ago, and the unanimous decision was that the, the best thing for us to do as an organization was to pull up all the stakes to try to make this year, this one last season for us, uh, everything that people have come to love about the Coventry Regional Farmers Market for summer 2015, but it would be our last as an organizing group.
1: Um, the the market is. I mean, give, give people a sense of like what's a typical day in the a busy day in the summer market. How many vendors? Uh, how many customers?
5: Yeah, the, you know, a slow day at the market has seventy five vendors, and we're not just talking about seventy five vendors. We're talking about as you as you mentioned, seventy five of the best farmers, food producers, and handcraft artisans throughout Connecticut. They're absolutely amazing. Um, attendance at a summer market day and a rainy day can be thirty five hundred people. On a on a busy day, one of the bigger events. The number of 75 vendors almost doubles, and the number of attendees can reach about 6,000 people. And, and like you mentioned, it is at the Nathan Hale Homestead, which um, was not constructed in 1776 to accommodate 5 or 6,000 people. So it it takes a crew of people just to get everyone off the roads and parked and and get that place set up to host what is essentially a country fair um every Sunday through the summer months.
1: It really does seem like a country fair and there are musical performances and there are I don't know, people going around on rides and animals that uh, children can pet and Mm -hmm. stuff and meanwhile we're all there buying our vegetables and I have to assume this is a lot a lot a lot bigger than you and these five people on the board had imagined when this thing was first hatched you weren't thinking of 5,000 customers per Sunday
5: no but you know what we are just by nature a really ambitious group (laughs) and we just wanted to get better and better and better so we didn't add vendors to say like let's get 10 more vendors this year we added vendors when there was a fabulous hot sauce producer, and we wanted to bring him into the market, or a brand new cheese maker that really belonged at the market, and the more wonderful things we added to the market, the more people came, and so step by step, we got to where we are now.
1: <laughs> I do have to say, the hot sauce guy is worth it, right? uh, just for his personality. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and my son always says, that nobody believes in his product as much as the hot sauce and guy. And the
5: market's just full of these folks that are just yeah. amazing.
1: And then he makes you take all the taste all the hot sauces, right. and you... Then you have to go lie down. Um, (laughs) All right. So um, uh, the question then becomes, and we're going to add to the conversation, we've got Winter Kaplinson here. She's the executive director of this uh, uh, amazing thing in eastern Connecticut. Uh, John Elsesser joins us. He's the town manager for Coventry. Um, uh, Mr. Elsesser, I assume that this Coventry farmers market is two things for Coventry. On the one one hand, it really is an incredible blessing. It's a jewel and a crown. It's something people can point to with a lot of pride. They're really I mean, I go to a lot of farmers markets. There's nothing else like this in Connecticut. On the other, so it's a blessing and a curse, right? It's also a huge amount of traffic, a lot of work, uh, even beyond the incredible work done by Winter and her volunteers. It's a lot of work for the town, I assume. Uh,
6: yes, uh, but it's it's much more a blessing than a curse. Uh, we've had a few little issues on, on, along the way and have resolved them to uh, the most part, and uh, give the board, uh, Bridges Healthy Cooking School, uh, a lot of credit for what they've brought to the uh, quality of life, uh, not only in Coventry, but uh, Eastern Connecticut.
1: So I was there on Sunday, uh, just yesterday out at the high school, and I saw you making your way around, talking to the various vendors. People are very excited. The town manager's here. Um, It was like Justin Bieber had arrived or something, you know. (laughs) There he is. There he is. So so I assume you're there walking around talking to vendors because you're not really particularly interested in seeing this thing uh, go the way of the buffalo.
6: No. uh, This was actually started uh, by our Economic Development Commission, uh, and uh, we had a college intern uh, that did much more than uh, photocopy papers. She started a market uh, working with the commission. So uh, we were able to spin it off to a very dedicated group of people to uh, that had a little bit more um, flexibility to move quicker than sometimes uh, town governments can move. Uh, so uh, we have a vested interest in, in trying to shape a new future. Uh, whether we can work with uh, uh, some other groups, uh, or or with the uh, um, Connecticut Landmarks themselves who own the property. Uh, But we certainly would like to spend some time to come up with uh, a worthwhile uh, market going forward Understanding it won't be the same uh, because there is magic and it's hard to recreate magic.
1: Um, let me ask Winter a little bit more about that, too. First of all, I understand that one issue here is that the lease, the arrangement with the Landmark Society, which controls the, the Nathan Hill House and the Nathan Hill property, uh, is a lease to your group that's non transferable
5: well this this lease agreement was actually negotiated with the assistance of the governor's office because Connecticut had such an interest in seeing the market continue in a place and and have a lease arrangement that we could handle and and that worked for us so the way the lease arrangement works is that uh, we asked Coventry to pull the main lease, so they hold the lease. We have a sublease from them, but that is written very specifically that it is for our group only if if, uh, we didn't have our 501c3 status, for example, we would lose it. So it is not a sublease that we could say, hey, you know, Girl Scouts want to run the market. You take it. The correct protocol is that we would have notified the town of Coventry that we were not intending to hold a market there anymore, which was our, our first stop. And at that point, Coventry still retains the right to hold a market there if they so choose for the life life of the lease.
1: So we'll come back with uh, John to the mechanics of that in just uh, a second. But let me just stay with you. One thing that I see happening. Uh, all over social media, and it's not uncommon, um, is people coming forward and saying, wow, I'd like to help. I wish there was something I could do to help, mm-hmm. um, which is nice, and I'm sure they mean it. Mm-hmm. But it's sort of not really what you need, right? You, I mean, not what you need, what the farmer's market needs. They don't really need somebody to say, wow, they'd like to help somehow. This, th- first of all, this is an incredible undertaking. Wh- however hard I think it is, however many moving parts I think it is, you can probably add a zero to that, right? To kind of get at what what's yeah, involved. Yeah, I mean,
5: it, it, if you peel apart the the luster of the farmers market, it's a it's a full out event for five or six thousand people, fully developed activities, and all of the concerns about public safety or regulations that go with that. So you're talking about the job of an event planner, and and to this point, every single person involved with the farmers market has been a volunteer. So it's it's a very significant undertaking, and one you know not to be taken lightly. One of the things that we've said thus far to to people saying sort of like something should be done, people should step up, Mm -hmm. Um, what I've said is do not wait until 2016 to volunteer. Volunteer in 2015, number one, because we need you, but number two, because you'd become part of the institutional memory of how we're doing what we're doing and can carry that forward to whatever the new organizational structure is.
1: So, John Elsesser, as town manager of Coventry, are you sort of shopping around now to see if there is some kind of nucleus that, that could could take this thing over?
6: Um, I, I think first we're gathering our breath. Uh, we're going to talk with the Economic Development Commission on Thursday night, um, going back to our roots that created it to see uh, what approach and methodology we'll, we we want to put together to move forward. So, I wouldn't say we're shopping around right now. We're certainly open to uh, ideas. To see, suggestions but uh we have uh, a sense of the order of magnitude of of the effort uh, and we want to make sure that we don't uh, do something that uh, doesn't work either so um, we're open to ideas and suggestions we absolutely concur with uh, winter's uh, uh, invitation for people to help this year uh, because no matter who uh, goes forward there's there's going to need uh, need for volunteers and uh, people who know what they're doing will help assure success. So not only for this year but going forward. So if people are willing to step up and learn the ropes, it'd be great.
1: Winner, Um, I think also the another thing that happens, uh, and I'm as guilty as anybody, is when you hear the news about that, you think about yourself. And so for me, you know, this I, I love this uh, market and. Uh, as you could probably have seen for me and my son and sometimes my son's girlfriend, this is sort of part of a Sunday ritual for us. We go to the winter farmer's market. We all have our wheatgrass shot, you know, <laughs> and we maybe get a little sandwich from the truck if that food truck is out there. Uh, and we buy all of our stuff. And we, uh, we know most of the people there mm-hmm. now and talk to all of them and enjoy talking to, to Wayne or or to, you know, to, the fish people from Stonington. And, and it's just this great thing. And I really enjoy it a lot. And it's, it is part of my life and part of my, my family life. Um, but I mean, I'm not the issue here. I'm not the story. None of us who shop there are really the story. This is a story of farmers who have to get their stuff to market somehow. Right. It's, it's a culture we say we value, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, of indigenously produced foods. But to do that, I mean, we can't just have farms. We we have to have farmers markets or something like them or there aren't going to be farms. What are you hearing from the farmers? What are they saying to you?
5: Well, first up, and I think you're absolutely right, it's, it's, it was logical and expected to hear people, you know, we want there to still be a market kind of an outcry. And mm. that's, you know, that's that first reaction. The vendors overwhelmingly, unanimously, as a matter of fact, have been um, appreciative and thankful, number one, Mm -hmm. for the efforts of the group and what it's meant to their farms and businesses for 11 years so far, but for the fact that there's one more full season ahead. There are, um, last I checked, over 120 farmers markets in the state. So this does give, number one, uh, several people posted, you know, Coventry is not the only market. You mm-hmm. can go to other markets. As a matter of fact, you can work to make your local market better. Um, but this is will be a time of transition for, for farms and food businesses to figure out what their business plan looks like um, with not the same Coventry market or not, you know, hopefully not, but not any market or or a different market that they might want to attend. So I think... Um, The year's lead time is a really significant part of this process for people whose livelihood is impacted or even depends on this farmers' market.
1: John Elsasser, I would assume that one of the reasons that you would put as much work into this as you as you do is not only because of a lot lot of Coventry residents like this, but Coventry's kind of become famous for this, right? I mean, I don't, I don't. Winter probably knows the person who's come to the Coventry farmers' market from Osaka, Japan, or something like that. But I mean, you know, my sense is anyway, not that Coventry wasn't already on the map for lots of other things, but I assume your town has acquired kind of a reputation for this.
6: It, it really does go to the heart of what we view ourselves. We view ourselves as kind of a semi-rural town. Uh, we, we've long standed, standing uh, had the goal of keeping the cows in Coventry uh, when we fought off the DevCo project when they wanted to put a $25,000 new town, uh, 25,000 person new town uh, in our community. Um, it, it is kind of who we are. And, you know, I've heard from several people, uh, that's why they've bought houses here. So it kind of helps explain why we're still building houses. And uh, and it adds the quality of life, not only to our community, but, but to the region. So yes, it is something we value. All right.
1: Well, um, we hope that this goes well. So winter, there is uh, one more winter uh, farmer's market, right? Yeah, we uh,
5: we have our last market day Sunday, Coventry High School from 11 to 2 this coming Sunday. And then the summer market opens on May 31st this year at the Hale Homestead. And we'll have Uh, a full summer season ahead of us.
1: All right. And for those people, by the way, who go into withdrawal between those two things, which would sort of include me, uh, you can go down to New Haven, down to Worcester Square on Saturday mornings. There are are some other options, too, around the state. A lot of your... uh, uh, producers uh, do, do Stonington. Stonington,
5: that's a beautiful market, and yeah. that and that's a year-round market too. So they're indoors until the weekend; they go outdoors.
1: Right, and New Haven now is indoors uh, during the winter too, and then goes outdoors during the summer. So, but because because it really becomes, I mean, after you do that, after you sort of start thinking about your vegetables and stuff like that, that way, it's kind of hard to go back to. It's
5: also a fun way in the off-season, this is what we do as organizers, to take our field trips around finding winter markets, even in other states. So um, Pawtucket, Rhode Island, has a beautiful winter market in the Hope Artist Village. Check that one out, too. All
1: right. My son and I are just twisted enough to make that trip. Mm -hmm. All right. We'd like to thank everybody who helped out with the show today. It was great to have Winter here in studio with us. And thanks to Noah Gordon and Steve Allman and John Elsesser. Special thanks to Betsy Kaplan, the person who invented the scramble. Tucker Ives is away today, so she came back and took the reins again. And it was uh, it was great to have her working with us. And we'll be back tomorrow with a show about Charles I and the New Haven regicides. They taste
0: so good. They taste so very, very, very good. Take advantage of them, Mark. Come and apply to some. We got the spring beans, snap beans, lima beans. We got the very kind of beans that I would like to put right in your pressure cooker. Pretty Baby, don't you see what I mean? They are the finest of beans, pools of beans. They are the best beans that you could find in this or any other marketplace. Welcome to the first day of the WNPR Farmers Market. You'll find a table over there with Where We Live tote bags made out of hemp, a table down that row selling assorted soy candles that smell like food schmooze items, and right here you can find Colin McEnroe's pants. If anybody has seen Colin McEnroe, please tell him we've found his pants. Thank you.